McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Hamburglar, the time is yours. Bravo, bravo. He said, these are McDonald's best burgers ever. And then, can I keep them? And then he just grabbed them and ran away. Brobble. Now get a Big Mac or double cheeseburger for two bucks in the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Must opt into rewards. Visit McD app for details. Available at most restaurants in this area. Comparison of McDonald's classic burgers to prior burgers. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Cass, I am going to admit something up front that this week's episodes, and I say episodes because it's part one and part two this week, well, they are for me a bit of a delicious forbidden fruit. Scottish fashion historian Cassie Ritchie is going to join us to talk about her work on the magical, mysterious, and mystifying purple one himself, Prince. And I say forbidden fruit because I was raised in a hyper-religious household, and I was never allowed to listen to Prince's music or watch his videos or his movies. So you might be wondering, how did that all play out? Well, you know, I think we know for most tweens and teens, where there is a will, there is a way. So Cass, I'm curious, were you a fan of Prince growing up? Oh, yeah. And I mean, I still am a huge Prince fan. I mean, Let's Go Crazy is like my life anthem. I listen to that song whenever I need to dance or just like a pick-me-up. You know, just one of his many, many songs that always gets me feeling good. But yeah, huge Prince fan. And that's, of course, why we're so pleased that Cassie's joining us today to share her extensive research and work on one of the 20th and 21st century's most prolific and iconic artists. And we say artist because Prince's creativity and creations pushed far beyond the realm of music, which he may be best known for. He's an arguably a performance artist of the utmost caliber and his sartorial stylings, I mean, come on, they're integral to his work. And they often 
refreshingly challenged notions of cis heteronormativity and Black masculinity. And Donatella Versace actually once remarked on Prince's impact, and she said, quote, he showed men what playing with your own image really meant. He showed men how to dare, and most importantly, to not be afraid to be who they are. He ignored rules. He did what made him feel good without caring of people's judgments. And perhaps for that reason, he seemed to operate on this entirely different fear from the rest of us, completely embodying his given name of Prince Rogers Nelson, who is, of course, the subject of Cassie's book on his royal badness, The Life and Legacy of Prince's Fashion. Cassie, thank you so much for joining us. Cassie, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. It's my absolute pleasure. I'm really excited to be here. And you were a listener and you reached out to us and you were like, I'm doing this project. I'm like, this is amazing. When are we going to do this? So here we are. And you sent us a copy of your book. And I do want to start out our conversation with something that you actually wrote in the book. You wrote, Prince means a million different things to millions of different people. So I'm hoping that you might share with our listeners a little bit about what Prince meant or means to you and how you first came to be working on this topic. Yeah, so that question always kind of gets me a bit choked up because... Um, Prince has always been a constant in my life. Um, I've been very lucky in terms of having parents that always encourage my weird and wonderful obsessions. And they also had really great eclectic music taste. And Prince was just always on in the house, in my dad's car, in his tape player, in my mum's CD player in the kitchen. Um, So I was always hearing his music. And it wasn't until I was maybe 13, 14 that I began to realise how Prince looked. And I was I was actually looking at the album, you know, like the linear notes, and I was looking at all the photo shoots. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing the Love Sexy tape cassette with, you know, like Prince naked on the cover, like with orchids and all these pastel writing swirling around them. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this, is, this is what this person looks like. Um, so I was just completely obsessed. And... It it sounds quite, you know, like cheesy to say, but but Prince has, has, like I say, he's been with me all throughout my life. When I went to university on the first night that we stayed, like we stayed in our halls, I brought in my Prince, um, like multi-DVD of Prince films and I showed it to a group of fashion students that had no idea who Prince was and we watched Purple Rain and those um, people that I lived with like 15 years ago now or something, um, we're still friends and we went to see Prince together and we had lots of, you know, like nights out and um, dancing to Prince, demanding that a small bar in Galashields, which is the Scottish borders, the middle of nowhere, play Prince, <laughs> Prince B-Sides. Um, <laughs> nice. So yeah, yeah, like Prince to me is like community and friendship and also like passion. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone I know that loves Prince is incredibly passionate about him as an artist, but also incredibly passionate about so many other creative aspects of of art and music and and fashion and styles. So it's just like a really lovely, wonderful community that kind of ebbs and flows throughout my life. And I'm really, really happy to be a Prince fan, proud to be a Prince fan. And you actually put that love to the page. You've created this book. And the book is quite cleverly organized, I have to say. It's organized thematically, and it's also organized chronologically. And it kind of walks us through this timeline 
of sorts vis-a-vis his signature looks as his style evolved. So I'm hoping that we can start out with Teenage Prince. Can you tell us a little bit about him when he was 18 years old, when he first signed with Warner Brothers in 1977? I mean, we're going to be focusing mainly on his style today, not necessarily so much the music. But what was Prince's look early on in his career? Prince at that time of his life, when you look, if, if you were to look at Prince in a lineup of other, you know, like young Minnesotans, he probably wouldn't have st- stood out hugely because he was wearing predominantly what was in fashion in the late 70s and you know like bootleg jeans flares Um, and he did shop a lot predominantly in thrift stores the thing that made Prince a little bit different and in those early images in places like North Minneapolis where he grew up you can see that kind of glimmer of a kind of like sartorial subversive style that is kind of bubbling underneath by the way that he styles those clothes so He's wearing the bootleg jeans, but he's teaming them up with maybe like a secondhand woman's blouse um, that's, you know, like embellished or, or beaded. He's wearing body chains, like hip chains. That was something that he wore throughout his career. He didn't just wear a, wh- a hip chain. One of uh, the images that I really love of Prince is just before or just after um, he gets signed and he's with a record executive and he's wearing what looks like an uh, animal print cardigan either worn backwards or or round the way there, there's some weird styling to it and above his jeans he's wearing this um waist chain that's connected to another waist chain and creates like <laughs> this strange pubic triangle um just to really zone in on that area and obviously that's a really bizarre personal style that has obviously been with him since he was a teenager and that he, you know, like that waist chain in particular, he wore them throughout his career. They're always glinting underneath things and there's cut out bodysuits that he wore that showed them off like in the the 80s and the the 90s as well. So yeah, he wasn't particularly wearing anything completely outlandish at that point, but it was that kind of personal style, wearing it with, um, you know, like women's jewellery, pairing up different mismatching secondhand garments that were probably from the 60s. So they were they were old hat anyway, and he was styling them in unusual ways. And we've talked about this on the show so many times that there is a distinctive difference between style and fashion. Like style is so much intrinsically personal versus like what the fashion system thinks that you should be wearing. And, and I think that that's kind of key. And we're going to keep coming back to that point when we're talking about Prince, is that this is style. I mean, like, he played with fashion, but that mainly it was style. Yeah, I, I completely agree. A lot of times when people, you know, like, if, if the media are writing about Prince and fashion, it's very much like, uh, you know, like, 12 scandalous outfits Prince wore. And people don't really get into that that kind of princeness, the kind of inner style that you personally have, that you develop from a young age. And, and is linear throughout your life. And like I say, things like the hip chain body wear, he wore unitards during that period as well. And that really kind of developed and throughout his career as well. And like his makeup, his hair, the jewellery, women in his life, he was borrowing their jewellery, their hoop earrings and playing about with makeup and things when he was a teenager. And that's obviously been part of who he is. Much like, you know, like for me, like I've always worn red lipstick and black eyeliner. And it's just, you know, like it's carried me throughout to, to who I am now. So there's definitely like that unique princeness that kind of 
stays with him throughout his career. And I think it's really interesting to see how he emboldens it, but then also powers it back when he becomes older. And I, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and also too, you know, you you mentioned the hip chains and the very first chapter of your book starts out talking about um, his distinctive leg warmers, which is amazing. You write in the book, you say, from Prince's deal signing in 1977 to 1979, there was an apparent change in both his performance style and appearance, and his distinctive leg warmers played a major role in this refashioning. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of leg warmers. I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that there might be several pair <laughs> in my upper drawer of my dresser currently. Um, but what was going on with his restyling at this early stage of his career, and why specifically were leg warmers significant? Yeah, I think it's it's great that you're interested in the leg warmers because to me the leg warmers are probably the most important like object within Prince's wardrobe because it was something that again like the bootleg jeans like the style he was wearing in that era leg warmers were were popular they were worn by young people but again it's that way that Prince was wearing them the first performance um at the Capri Theatre in Minneapolis, um, which is a fantastic uh, theatre that's still open in North Minneapolis. Touchwood is still open in, um, during, during COVID and stuff. But I had the pleasure to go there a couple of years ago. He wore the leg warmers on top of skinny jeans and then um, they were pulled really, really high up, almost so that they mimicked a pair of stockings. Mm. Um, and he wore them with heeled boots as well. Um, and I talk a little bit about that um, outfit in the book. And then as Prince um, becomes, you know, like the Prince that we know today, and um, he starts performing, um, doing more live shows, he decides to kind of strip off a little bit. And the leg warmers remain. He begins to formulate this uniform that he wears during the Dirty Mind phase, um, which is an album that came out in 1980. And just before that, um, towards the end of 1979, he begins to, like I say, take off those jeans. He's kicking about on stage in black bikini briefs, a flasher trench coat, a secondhand trench coat, um, and then these leg warmers that are, again, styled really high on his legs so that it appears that he's wearing women's stockings. So there's that real kind of like juxtaposition of, of you know, like male-female and and that kind of is because I remember at the beginning when I was looking into this more seriously, I was thinking that he was wearing stockings or, you know, like a thick kind of, um, but he, he's, he's wearing leg warmers. And with the leg warmers, so he wears these leg warmers for about two years and then he morphs into the really high-waisted, ruched black trousers that are well known from uh, the Purple Rain movie and, and the purple trench coat outfit. And to me, those leg warmers are like a direct connection between that kind of worn, high, skinny, slightly ruched, um, and then it gets developed into this really bespoke, high-waisted trouser that um, is designed for him to perform in and move in and gyrate. So yeah, the leg warmers are like a really, um, I love I love the leg warmers. There was a pair that was, um, I believe it was the pair that he wore at the Capri Theatre that were sold a couple of years ago. The person who sold them was um, a member of, of a kind of Prince band, uh, Susanna Melvoin. She had also been Prince's partner um, throughout the 80s and she had mentioned that 
Prince had held onto these leg warmers. And in the mid-80s, it was a particularly cold day in, Min- in Minneapolis and, and he let her borrow these leg warmers. So again, it's just interesting that he held on to these leg warmers and they've got lots of holes in them and they're all, you know, like they've, they've, they've seen a life, these leg yeah. warmers. Um, so yeah, Prince's leg warmers, I love them. <laughs> it's so amazing. And, and I love the fact that you kind of like tap into that point about leg warmers to the trousers. And I think we're going to talk about the specifics of Prince's like tailoring style here in a little bit, but like there is a very specific Prince silhouette that we see evolve. You mentioned the trench coats and of course we cannot go any further without talking about this because I would say that within his lexicon of style, the trench coat is arguably one of the most important pieces had staying power throughout his entire career. So when do we first see the trench coat appear and how does it play into Prince's, as you say, new sartorial guise? Yeah, the trench coat pops up um, during the dirty mind phase as well. So he's wearing that with his leg warmers and the bikini brief. And the Dirty Mind record was, it was really controversial at the time. And if you listen to Dirty Mind to this day, it's still it's still very provocative. And it's the, the lyrics are incredibly controversial. And, and they're speaking about things like incest and all these, all these um, interesting things. <laughs> Prince wanted a look that was going to shock and dismay and... Provoke. Yeah, uh-huh. like he wanted to turn the audience on as well as turn them off. It was... The trench coat, he wore the trench coat, like I say, at the beginning of the Dirty Mind period. And it was, um, I believe, originally just a secondhand army surplus trench coat. And then from there, he began to embellish it. So that's when you see like the inclusion of the Rude Boy pin badge that he started to wear that became kind of synonymous with the Dirty Mind style. He was listening to a lot of UK ska bands, you know, like, like the specials, the selectors, things like that. And he was tapping into things like through his bandmates, he was listening to a lot of UK music. So there's that kind of, um, you know, almost linked to quadrophenia as well. He was looking to David Bowie. The trench coat to me works because it's such a theatrical piece. Mm. During the Dirty Mind performance, during live performances, he would buckle it up, you know, like it would be fastened. And when it's fastened, it just looks like he's wearing, you know, like woolly trousers or woolly tights. And then when he opens it up, you see it. It's like a flasher coat. He opens it up and you see all his, his, his bits. But, um, you know, like when he's spinning around and when he's playing guitar, it gets picked up in the wind and there's flashes of thigh and flashes of stomach and all this bare flesh. And at that point, the trench coat was really, you know, like a kind of vehicle to, to conceal and reveal. And then it kind of stayed with him for a while. Then... Uh, the first person, uh, from my understanding, and it's quite hard to, to find information on this, um, but the first person to make the first bespoke trench coat for Prince and for his band, because they all, to some degree, were wearing customised trench coats, was Sylvia Amos, who was Andre Simone, a member of Prince's band's sister. Um, the trench coat was studied with pyramid studs, and then it was dyed uh, lavender. And then when you get to 1999, it's a lovely purple lamy and it's really garish and it really kind of pops on screen. And then by the time you hit to Purple Rain, 
it's almost like, you know, like that's the kind of um, exhibit A, like, you know, like the creamed and perfect variation of the trench coat. And he does wear it, like I say, he wears it throughout, um, like in Sign of the Times, he wears like a black leather trench coat. Um, he wore a variation of a purple trench coat in 1999. Um, so it does all pop up. I think as well, the trench coat is a really important garment in Prince fandom as well, because he was clever enough to realise that a trench coat, secondhand trench coat, army surplus stores, especially like in, in the 80s, it's so cheap to buy. It's a genderless item. You can, whoever can wear it, and you can also DIY it. It's a fairly inexpensive piece that, you know, like you yourself, you can put your badges on, you can get the pyramid studs if you want, or you can glue bits of rhinestones and the chains and things like that that he did. And you do start to see that in audience pictures from the Controversy Tour. There's images of, I'm sure it's Detroit, there's guys in the front and they're wearing black trench coats just like Prince on stage. So that, like, he's kind of building that kind of, you know, like that visual communication with his fans and he really builds on that throughout his um, career. Yeah, and also too, like, I want to delve into this a little bit what you were talking about just now about the materiality of his wardrobe, right? So oftentimes the materiality of his wardrobe is very much flaunting the traditional strictures of menswear. I mean, right in the face of it, you know, he was incorporating lace and ruffles and metallics and all like metallic trimmings and all of these things that, you know, now are kind of more or less about the gendering of like aesthetics, but now more or less are thought of as feminine. So to what purpose was he doing this? I think it felt natural to him. I really do. I think that, as I mentioned before, he was wearing women's women's blouses, women's tops when he was a teenager. So he wasn't afraid to wear something that wasn't, you know, like I say, like a, a gendered item. Um, I think things like lace and, um, you know, like the brocades and the lurexes that he wears in the mid-80s, particularly during Purple Rain, I think it's it's he he loved the new romantic phase and he really was inspired, like I say, by those UK um, artists that when Prince did it in Purple Rain, it was kind of old hat by that time. You know, like in the UK, it had its moment in the late 70s and the early 80s. But I think by seeing people like Adaman and Boy George and Marlon, these artists in these kind of, you know, like quote unquote feminine fabrics, it just worked. And I think because Prince was, particularly with Purple Rain, he was kind of creating this kind of, you know, like Casanova, um, love god, as he refers to it, like, you know, like persona. And, you know, like all throughout his career, he was really, really invested and interested in, like you say, the materiality of garments. He loved fabric swatches. He was really interested in the kind of tactility of it. And things like there was periods where he wore lace trousers that were see-through, and but you could see like, you know, like his bum through them and things. And I think that kind of almost like, you know, like when you see burlesque artists and they have the modesty panels, like layers upon layers, I think he really played with that. And I think a performer like Prince, these types of fabric, these like immersive engaging fabrics, they really work when they're on stage and when they're on screen especially somebody like Prince because he's, you know, like he's shaking and he's flexing and he's grinding and his body's flexing the fabric and, you know, like bursting out the, the flesh just that little bit too much to get people all riled up. So, yeah, I think it was just a really natural thing for him and it, 
he, he never shied away from it. It was something that he did all throughout his life. Mm-hmm. And there's a little there's a little smidge of historicism in there as well, I would say. Like he really did understand the trench coat as like a 20th century garment, but also there are lots of nods to that silhouette throughout fashion history as well, and, and particularly in conjunction with the types of, um, of materials that he was playing with and the colors, which were, you know, definitely masculine in the 18th century, but not so much in the 20th. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, for me, one thing that is really engaging about Prince as like a style icon is his ability to bricolage so many different inspirations. So like you say that, you know, like the the, the kind of um, dandyism that he was obviously inspired by, but then, you know, like mixed with, um, you know, like new wave, um, mixed with a bit of sleaze, mixed with punk, and then really, really grounded in his North Minneapolis roots. I do talk about a bit in the book, but he was brought up surrounded by working musicians as his his father was a working musician and so was his his mother to um and like I say he was part of a community they all met um at a certain community space called the way and they were learning to play these instruments and there was a real kind of culture of dressing up to to show out and go out so yeah I think it was all just part of a kind of big pick and mix but he really knew how to you know, juxtapose things in ways that got people excited. Yeah, and it feels like so effortless for him. It never feels put on. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Another thing that seemed to apparently come effortless to him is his wearing of heels. (laughs) There's been a lot written in the press in the past um, that he wore heels because he was on the shorter side, but he has very vehemently and repeatedly disputed that. So I'm curious if, if you have thoughts on how heels and also this like gender bending aspect, which runs throughout his style, like how does that function within this sort of like sartorial construction of his significant sex appeal? I think the heels, like, I mean, he he says it best himself. Like he said that he wore, he wore the heels because women love them. The ladies like it. And again, heels were something that he wore since he was young. I do believe that the heels, I think, I think one of the kind of unique things about Prince um, to dress a body like Prince's is, is his unique stature. He does have an unconventional stature in the way that he was a shorter man. 
um, but he was also very slight and, and muscular. So his body wasn't, you know, like it was the perfect body for a tailor. And I think um, heels were a, a huge vehicle in creating that, you know, like the prince silhouette that we see. The heels do not change. The heels are refined. When he was younger, um, I spoke to Prince's cousin a couple of years ago and he would tell me that they would scour um, thrift stores and look for platform heels like uh, Carlos Santana. Mm-hmm. And he would wear these heels. And so they kind of start out like you're kind of almost like a Cuban heel. And then Von Terry, who was a designer who worked with Prince during the Purple Rain era and a little bit before and a little bit after, he had uh, mentioned that he used to wear candies. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, it's not a brand that I'm, I'm aware of um, from Scotland, but I, I know, in a, I think it was quite a well-known, wasn't it? Like a, So he wore a particular candies heeled boot and I've, I've seen the image and from that image, it looks like they've really, they've taken it to a bespoke footwear designer and they've made that, that shape. Prince was a fan and he looked up to so many um, musicians, people like um, Santana, James Brown, um, Little Richard. These performers were wearing heels. So to him, that was like, you know, like, oh, they were the cool cats. That's what he wanted to adopt and, and, and make for himself. I think it goes hand in hand as well with Prince's attention to detail and that kind of goes back to dandyism, you know, like the the cuffs match the collar, match the shoes and the quality of fabrics and the presentation of self, the the dressing of the body. I think, think again, it just felt natural to him. But when I speak to people about Prince, it's always the same. People are like, oh my God, I loved his clothes, but I could never wear them. Prince is the only one that can wear them. And I think Prince is one of those unique people in popular culture that you'd mentioned before. That that personal style, it's his and his alone. And it's it's something that can't be, it can't be replicated, it can't be transferred. And and the heels are a big part of it. I think I speak about it in the book, but there's a lot of times when Prince is trying to redefine, maybe not redefine, but trying to reclaim his place as kind of a heavy hitter in, in, in popular music when you know like maybe things like hip-hop and rap are, are are more popular but he still presents himself you know like corseted darted waists big shoulders and the heels and the makeup and the hair like he's 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 challenging you know like the the, the kind of heteronormative masculine you know like conventional way that a man should dress particularly the way that a black man should dress as well. He did so all throughout his life unapologetically. Mm -hmm. And you were just talking about that silhouette. I want to tap back into kind of something we touched on earlier. And a lot of that had to do with tailoring. There was a very specific style and proportion that he was always kind of like aiming for. And I would say that the tailoring definitely plays into creating his, you know, sexy image that he has. And a lot of that had to do with this tension between tight and loose and reveal and conceal. That just runs all the way through all of it. So do you have any thoughts on this and thoughts on some of these tailoring tricks that his wardrobe ultimately employed to create this style that he seemed to gravitate to for his entire career? I think the word tension is really really important there because like you say there is that real like push and pull and 
if you're a Prince fan, you know that Prince's, Prince's life and Prince's music is built of contradictions between the sacred and the profane. And it reflects in his dress as well. The tailoring, I kind of refer to it as unconventional tailoring. And, you know, like he builds upon, like you say, that kind of um, dress history background, these, these historical garments and silhouettes that are steeped in history and functionality. And then he flips them and he subverts them. He's like, okay, trench coat, okay, that's fine. I'm going to wear it with, with my bikini briefs and I'm going to make it purple <laughs> and covered in studs. Um, I, I think Under the Cherry Moon's a really great example of that film because it's this really wonderful, weird take on Prince's art. It's very, it's, it's, it's a very strange film, but it's one of my favourite films because it's a blend of old Hollywood and, you know, like the French Riviera and the Harlem Renaissance and all this kind of blended together. But with the 80s, there's people kicking about with boom boxes, but women are dressed as flappers and Prince's um, presenting himself as this kind of, um, his version of Rudolf Valentino, you know, like this kind of heartthrob. And in that, he wears these really unusual um, garments designed by Marie France. And they're made of these beautiful brocades and lurex and all these wonderful fabrics. A lot of the fabrics that she actually sourced were from the Paramount lot in California. So they were fabrics worn in, um, you know, like the 30s and the 40s. And the silhouette is just so bizarre because, you know, like there's draped backs, there's cowl necks um, on the back collar. It's like a midriff bearing tailcoat that's, you know, like diagonally cut that shows slices of his hips. And then, you know, like, it's such a bizarre, only something, like I say, only something that Prince could do. And the tailoring that he he kind of, um, like I say, he was the perfect person for bespoke clothing. And he really built on that. In terms of, like you say, the silhouette, um, there was always the broad shoulders, you know, like the Joan Crawford shoulders. There was always the really slight waist and then the slight hips as well. He loved his bum. Because it was fabulous. Let's all just I mean, agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But he was very particular about showing off his bum. You know, like he wanted the fabric. He wanted um, the trousers in particular to, to show off that part of his body. And he used it in performing. You know, like he would flip around and show his audience, do you like my bum and give a wiggle and things. And as you mentioned before about that fabric, the, the blend of the fabric, the way that the garments are cut out, it's that kind of play on negative space in the body and using, it's almost like he's kind of remapping erogenous zones for, mm-hmm. for a man. Yeah. Um, I really love Prince and a film called Graffiti Bridge and he's very covered up for Prince um, and he wears these um, like tunic top slash, you know, like almost like loungewear, looks like he's going to yoga but there's slices of fabric, you know, like you only see this part of his neck and you only see his arms, but then you see like a little slice of uh, an area of the hip. And it's something, you know, like in the 90s in particular, he really kind of built on that with this kind of almost like, you know, like there's lots of influence. You can tie lots of, you know, like matador, traditional silhouettes and zoot suits and things. But again, it's that subversion of it and cutting away areas and showcasing the areas that I think were... I think, you know, like Prince was like, no, yeah, like we need to show off this this little slice of fabric here. And yeah, like we need to show off my waist chain. Like it's, 
he wasn't, you know, like looking at what Armani were doing for menswear. He was looking at what Armani were doing for women's wear and, and kind of re- redressing that into what he was doing. Cassie, thank you so much for sharing your passion for Prince with us in part one of this two-part episode. That's right, Dress listeners. We are not yet done exploring the sartorial legacy of Prince. Thank goodness. There's so much more to say on this topic, and we'll get into that in part two, which will launch on Thursday. We sure will, including exploring some of his most iconic looks and the makers behind them. That does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you consider playing a bit with your own take on Prince's sartorial bravado next time you get dressed. Remember, dress listeners, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to reach out, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Always you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you know we love to post images that accompany each week's episodes. And thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.